Have you ever read an obituary that included the deceased's SAT score? You ever come across that in the newspaper or online? I, I don't think that I have, right? That's generally not in those pieces of important information. But I remember when I was 17, I thought that number was going to be the most important thing in the world, right? And so I studied hard for that test. And there's a lot of people, a lot of parents, even more than their 17-year-olds, think that number is so important. And so some parents are willing to shell out all kinds of money to help their kids make a better score on that test. Some families will spend over $10,000 investing in SAT training for their kids. There's one tutor in New York City who charges $1,500 an hour to train people. And to me, that was like a marketing mistake. If you're training for the SAT and you're going to charge that much money, you might as well charge $1,600, right? <laughs> and you, I mean, you, there's your whole slogan right there. You pay $1,600, you make $1,600, right? I don't know, maybe he's not confident enough in his methods, but he seems pretty confident if he's charging that much money. But I wish somebody had told me as a 17-year-old, hey, study hard, work hard, try hard for the glory of God, get the best score that you can, but this is not the most important test you're ever going to take. In fact, when all is said and done, it's not going to be one of the top 10 most important tests that you take in life, right? Because the most important tests that we are all going to take in life will not involve a number two pencil and filling in bubbles on some sheet of paper to be passed through some Scantron machine. It's going to be when our hearts are tried through some trial in our life, when we are tempted by sin, or even when we are tested to the point where we reach a crossroads where our choices are basically, I can deny Christ or I can be faithful to him and suffer the consequences, right? And that, if, if, you, if one of us faced that test, even in the ultimate test, if it would cost you your life, are you ready for that test? These are the kinds of tests that we want to prepare for today as we get back to John 18, where we're going to see two different examples. We're going to see an example of failure and then the ultimate example of faithfulness when the ultimate test came. So open up your Bibles, please, to John chapter 18, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 27 today. John 18, 12 through 27. Last week, we saw them come to arrest Jesus in the garden, and even then, we started to see a contrast between Peter and Jesus. Peter takes out his sword and lunges at the servant of the high priest while Jesus rebukes him and says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And today we're going to see more of a contrast between Peter and Jesus. And it kind of breaks down into four scenes, starting with Jesus and what's happening with him, then going back to Peter and then back to Jesus and back to Peter again. So we want to look at each of these scenes and see four lessons for us as we prepare and seek to be faithful in moments of testing. Let's start with the first section there, verses 12 through 14 in John 18. It says, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews 
that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So as you look at those, verse 12 reminds us of the cast of characters we saw in the garden last week, the Roman soldiers who came, uh, their captain and some of the officers of kind of the Jewish religious leaders who were there to arrest Jesus. But then we see two new names, at least to this scene, in verse 13, and those are the names of Annas and Caiaphas. And we're going to talk more in detail about these men and who they were and what they did, but let me just start by summarizing it and letting you know these were bad guys, bad, wicked men. And they were wicked men who held positions of incredible authority in the Jewish culture. They were wicked rulers. But what we're going to see, even from these verses and some of the things that it says, it's going to remind us Jesus is still in control even of these wicked rulers. Point number one this morning, trust God's control over wicked rulers. Trust God's control over wicked rulers. And we learn more about Annas and Caiaphas. It's interesting. It says Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. But then in verse 19, it says the high priest is questioning Jesus. And it repeats that in verse 22. He's answering the high priest. But in verse 24, it says that Annas sent him bound off to the high priest. So would the real high priest please stand up? What's going on? Who is the high priest here? And what we know from history and other sources outside the Bible is that Annas had been the high priest. Uh, He had held that office but he had been removed from that office by the Roman governor who was the governor before Pontius Pilate, who is very famous, obviously, because the role he's about to play, as we'll see next week. But Annas had been removed from that role, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, uh, holds that official title. And maybe you think of it somewhat like a a former president. Often they'll, they'll still be referred to by that title, even though they don't hold the office anymore. But it seems that there's something even more going on here that although Annas is not the high priest anymore, it's really a bunch of his sons or sons-in-law that hold that office. And it seems that although Annas may not technically be the high priest, he is still the one with the authority. He is still the one pulling all the strings uh, and, and people are still doing what he says. And both between him and Caiaphas, what we learn about these guys uh, from history is that they were described by greed and a lust for power. And you might be like, that, that sounds like politicians I know, right? That sounds like politicians today, right? But what's unique about them is the office that they held. Annas and Caiaphas didn't hold the office of mayor or governor or whatever. They held the office of high priest, right? This was a religious office. The high priest should have been the most godly guy in the whole country. This was a serious thing. They were descendants from Aaron, or should have been, and God took this very seriously, and God didn't waste any time letting that know. Even the very sons of Aaron, when they offered up strange fire, it says in Leviticus, God struck them down. He consumed them. So here you have these men holding this position of power, even of religious power, 
but they're wicked. So wicked that the high priest of Israel is going to call for the son of God to be crucified. That's messed up, right? I mean, that's as messed up as you can possibly be. The high priest of anybody should have been the person that would said, hey, look, it's the Messiah. Everybody worship him. But instead, the high priest is going to be leading the charge and saying, crucify him. This is a tragic thing. But even as we see this wicked ruler, even as we've already talked about, when we think of people that are greedy, have a lust for power, aren't doing what they should be doing, we can look around and identify plenty of that in our own time, in our own age, around the world, in our nation, in our, the places where we live, right? We know what it is to have wicked rulers. We've had them, we have them, we will have them. But this passage is going to remind us that even in the midst of all that, God still reigns supreme and he is in control and we don't need to be afraid or we don't need to react like Peter does last week in lashing out with the sword or like he will this week, cowering in fear and denying Christ. And whatever you might be concerned about, whether it's foreign leaders or presidents or senators or governors, and they will do foolish things, they will do wicked things. But even in the midst of all that, God is in control. And this text is going to remind us, not only is God in control of what's going on, he's actually using everything that's going on to accomplish his purposes. And that's exactly what he's doing here. It reminds us of it in verse 14. It was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So while this is the first time we meet Caiaphas kind of in this night, it's not the first time we've met Caiaphas in the Gospel of John. And it might be helpful to go back to John chapter 11 to see this earlier thing that it's referring to, where he, it says that he, he advised the Jews that it would be expedient. Well, what is it talking about? Well, going back to John chapter 11, verse 45, uh, they start plotting to kill Jesus. Now, what makes that, again, incredibly amazing is that John 11, verses 1 through 44 was the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And now the religious rulers, instead of saying, this guy is raising people from the dead, it must be the Messiah. Instead of saying that, they're saying, how can we get rid of this guy? And how can we get rid of that Lazarus guy too, is eventually what they say. But they're actually kind of freaking out at first because they're saying, Somebody's got to stop Jesus because if nobody stops Jesus, the the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our nation. And I don't think they're selflessly concerned for the nation all of a sudden. They don't want to lose their power, right? Jesus is a threat to our power. What are we going to do? Caiaphas has the answer. Verse 49, he says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He says, you guys, you're a bunch of idiots. And why are you freaking out? The solution is simple. We killed Jesus and we get to go on with our lives, go on with our power, right? He sounds more like a mob boss than he does the high priest of Israel, right? It shows you how cold 
cruel and calculating this guy was. But even in that, God reminds us, actually, I'm in control. Look at what it goes on to say in verse 51. It says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So Caiaphas's words came true, not ultimately in the way that he intended or that he wanted, but exactly in the way that God intended and God wanted. Jesus wasn't going to die just so Caiaphas and his cronies could preserve their power. Jesus was going to die that the nation could be saved. And he was going to die not only that the nation could be saved, but that all from all over the world, people like you and me could be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The wicked rulers of the world were scheming, but God's plan was going exactly the way that he wanted to. And even God used their wicked scheming in the end to accomplish his own plans. And so when we look out at wicked rulers in our own world, right? That's not something that we should ignore. I mean, as Christians, that should, that should grieve us. And we should seek to be salt and light in this world. But we should never be afraid. We should never worry. We should never freak out because we know God is on the throne. In Psalm 2, it says, why do the nations rage? And, you know, basically the kings of the earth gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you ever feel like that when you look out at the world? Like the world is all just coming together against God, against his truth, against Christ. And you look at that and you're like, this is not good. And you're not wrong. It's not good. But we start to, to freak out. Do you remember what Psalm 2 says God is doing? It says, he who sits in the heavens, what? He laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs at all the kingdoms of the world and their schemes. And they're trying to devise their way around what he has said. If you've been reading through the Bible reading with us, just yesterday in Isaiah 45, we read about King Cyrus, who was a wicked Persian king. And he, but hundreds of years before, God calls him out by name and says, I am going to raise you up to do what I want you to do is what he says. And God says, I'm going to do this, Isaiah 45, 5, because I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. God's saying, you're doing exactly my purpose. Proverbs 21, 1 is a good reminder to us. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God can change the minds of kings to get them to do a right thing and a good thing. And even when the kings seem to be deciding bad things, God is still working it out according to his plan. And really, I think from John, I'm trying to make an argument from the greater to the lesser. We'll see all kinds of injustice and abuse of power in our world, but I don't think we're going to see anything worse than the high priest of Israel seeking to crucify the Son of God. And if God can use that to accomplish his purpose for his glory, then I'm pretty sure anything we come across, 
God can use to accomplish his purpose for his glory. And that's going to prepare us for those moments of testing, for those moments of trial, because we will spend 0% of our time freaking out and 100% of our time trusting our God who is 100% in control. But Peter, he doesn't seem to be quite grasping that. We saw last week, right? He tries to take matters into his own hands with the sword. Well, this week, we're going to see something different. Let's look at the next kind of scene here in John 18. Verses 15 through 18. And it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So we're reminded of some of the details. There's this other disciple that brings Christ in. We don't know exactly who. Most people think it was the disciple John who wrote this gospel because it seems he likes to not identify himself by name when he has a part to play. So it's very possible, but I don't know that we can know for sure that we need to know for sure. We're reminded that all of this was happening at night. They're they're standing around a fire. It would have been cold, either late March, early April, and the altitude of Jerusalem actually would fit right in here with the altitude in the Treasure Valley. You know, cold, middle of the night situation, warming themselves by the fire. But what I want us to see, even though this story is very familiar, is look at the actual question. Look at how this goes down with Peter as this other disciple comes to get him. And and what is Peter doing? Why is he kind of lurking outside the gate? It's really hard to say why he's doing that or even if he should have been doing that. But he's brought in and it's a servant girl. So that's one of the things that helps us know this probably was not happening at the temple because it wouldn't have been a servant girl watching the gate. Uh, She you know, opens at the prompting of this disciple. And it's the servant girl who says to Peter, you also are not this man's disciple. And it's very interesting. This is all coming from a servant girl. This isn't coming from, you know, some big brawny bouncer, you know, intimidating looking guy, some lowly servant girl. And even how she asks the question, she says, you also are not one of this man's disciples. From that, her using the word also, it seems to indicate The disciple who came to get Peter, she knew that he was a disciple of Christ. Yet he was in the courtyard. He was doing fine. It makes Peter's decision seem maybe even a little more irrational that he didn't, he wouldn't have been in grave danger, at least not from this person, if he would have admitted that he was a follower of Christ because this person was there and she already knew. But in some ways it might've happened so fast that Peter didn't even realize what he had done in the moment. 
I mean, we want to like make it this huge dramatic thing where the question is poised and Peter, you know, stands there with the puppet, you know, angel and devil and makes his decision and thinks, well, wait, isn't this what Jesus said I would do? No, I think it happened more fast. Her question, it implies a negative answer. You're not one of his disciples, are you? You know, she's saying you're not one of his disciples. And he simply gives the easy answer and says, I am not. Have you ever been in a situation where you were kind of put on the spot and asked an awkward question and before you even realized kind of what was happening, you had said something to kind of get out of the situation that wasn't true? And so I think it's more likely that what happens here is it happens so fast. Before he maybe even realizes what he has done, he has now done the thing he said he would not do. He denied Christ. And he's somewhere he never thought he would be. And he didn't see this coming. He was challenging Jesus, saying, no, I will die with you. And that's where I want us to consider, why does this happen? Why does Peter deny Christ? And I think, not just from our own conjecture, I think scripture has tried to show us Peter had a wrong kind of confidence. Peter was very self-confident in his own power to stand up under trial instead of really relying on Christ. So point number two, we want to build the right kind of confidence. Build the right kind of confidence. We need to be prepared for a day where you will be put on the spot. You will have the choice to be faithful to Christ or to suffer some consequence in your life. We've been looking so much at the scripture, reminding us persecution is coming. And I think if you're paying any attention to what's going on in the world, what's going on in our culture, you're going to see, hey, if I'm going to be faithful to Christ and stick to what the Bible says, that's going to cost me something. And so you need to be prepared for when that choice comes to you. And even today, I'm sure many of you are saying, not me, pastor. I'll never deny Christ. I'm going to stand strong. And that's where we need to, all right, let's stop and let's listen to ourselves and let's ask, who do you sound like right now, right? You start to sound like Peter. I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to deny Christ like those other people I see falling away. Now, it's certainly not wrong to be committed to Christ. And it's certainly not wrong to be resolved to stand for Christ. But as you do, there at least should be an acknowledgement of what Jesus said to Peter in the garden. Hey, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. God, I, I want to stand strong, but I realize my own flesh is weak. And we need to humbly realize that standing for Christ in some of those moments is probably not as easy in practice as it is in theory. And many of us have not dealt with kind of that level of intense persecution. I mean, if you're faithful and following Christ, you're going to experience opposition to your faith. But most of what the average American Christian has experienced on that front is very like junior varsity compared to what most Christians have experienced throughout the world and throughout history, right? And maybe you haven't put yourselves in the shoes enough of 
uh, people like John Bunyan, for instance, who was imprisoned for preaching the gospel and could have walked out at any time if he just said, I'm not going to preach anymore. He could have gone back to his wife and his kids. But he said, no, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel. I'm not going to give in in that way. And maybe you haven't really counted the cost of what it would actually feel like in those moments. Or you haven't thought through the ways your mind would work to rationalize and say, well, it's not totally denying Christ. It's just a little compromise to keep my job or to keep this client or whatever it may be. We haven't really thought through those things. And so don't be too sure of yourself. And while we speak of many of this in kind of this big situation like we see Peter, where it's really, am I going to deny Christ or or follow him? So much will come up in other temptations as well. I think the same principle applies. Or you might say, I would never steal money from from my job. I would never do that. I I would never lie about something and, you know, to pad my bottom line or my taxes or whatever it may be. I, I would never, ever do that. Oh, I would never commit adultery or look at pornography. I I would never do that. And we start to think about all the things that we would never do. And again, we should have those resolutions to stand against those sins. But self-confidence and godly resolve are not the same thing. And one thing that's missing in self-confidence that should be there in godly resolve is humility. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that encouraging verse that says, hey, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He's not going to allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. And he's going to provide the way of escape. Isn't that encouraging? Well, let's not forget the verse that comes right before that. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. It says, hey, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right? Hey, if you think you've got it figured out, be careful lest you fall. Don't be too sure of yourself. That's not the right kind of confidence. And practically, what can that look like? And again, I think scripture shows us this. One of the practical things that Peter was missing is prayer. He was not prayerful. While Jesus is pouring out his heart and sweating like drops of blood in the garden, Peter is taking a nap. And what are the exact words of Christ when he wakes Peter up? He says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Saying, Peter, you got to pray to prepare yourself for temptation. And I just think, man, if, if Jesus had to pour out his heart to the Father, if Jesus, the Son of God, the only perfect one that's ever done it, had to rely on the Father, how much more do you and I? We must be leaning on God and the practical way we do that is through prayer. If you head into persecution, high on bravado, but low on prayer, I don't think that's going to go well for you. That's the wrong kind of confidence. But a kind of confidence that starts with a biblical resolve, I want to stand firm for Christ, but then has a humble acknowledgement, but I'm weak and I need help and then leads to the practical, and I'm going to pray to God and ask him to strengthen me and ask me, ask him to help me. That's the kind of confidence that we need. Let him who thinks he stands take heed 
lest he fall. But a lot of us want to just think, you know what? I got this. I got this. I got this is like one of those phrases that's, you know, probably in the top 10 famous last words, right? I got this. Yeah, not so much. Remember when I was over as a college student with our missionary partner in Uganda, we were uh, traveling somewhere and there was like 10 or 11 of us crammed into this eight passenger vehicle and we'd had a flat tire and, you know, put on the, the spare tire back on the road. And I'm sitting kind of in the rear left passenger seat by the window. And all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I see something like glisten as it seemingly flies away from the car. And I look over to the two guys next to me who had been responsible for changing the tire. And I was like, did one of the lug nuts just fly off the car? And they said, oh no, we tightened those. Basically, no, we, we got this. We did this right. 30 seconds later, our car came screeching to a halt because the rear left wheel was now missing, right? It had literally come flying off the car because, oh, we, we got this. And even when we were warned about it, no, 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 we did that right. How many times is it like that in our own lives? Well, we got this. And even when a warning comes, no, 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 I'm fine. And I think prayer really is the way that we tighten the screws of our own heart and our own resolve to make sure that we are standing fast and dependent on God and not in our own strength. So we see here Christ and ultimately in this passage, Christ is going to be the positive example and we see the failure of Peter, but I think there's something in all of this for us to learn as we prepare for these tests. Let's look at the third scene now with Jesus actually being questioned by Annas. Follow along as I now read verses 19 through 24. It says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So there's a lot going on here, but the first thing that I want to point out to you is all of this was very highly irregular and very unjust, even according to what were the standards in this culture in that time. Even that they start by questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. They're questioning Jesus about this. That's not how it was supposed to work. You want to accuse someone of a crime, you need witnesses. Even going back to the Old Testament, you're not going to convince, convict somebody of crime without two or three witnesses but they're putting Jesus on the spot. And even today in our culture, you have things like the Fifth Amendment or you know, your Miranda uh, rights. You have the right to remain silent because if the police are really gonna accuse you or the district attorney is gonna make a charge against you, they need evidence, they need witnesses, and you don't have to give any of that about yourself. They're basically, even according to their own standards, trying to not really let Jesus have his rights. And again, all of this is happening in the dead of night, uh, no transparency, and trying to avoid public 
scrutiny. This is, this is wrong. But in the midst of all of this, Jesus doesn't back down. He doesn't go back on one thing that he has said, but he stands. And I think even as he does it, he gives us an incredible template for how we should respond when put in a similar situation. So point number three, stand with Jesus and like Jesus. Stand with Jesus and like Jesus. And if you want to add, because if we don't have enough already in that point, you can add, and because of Jesus, right? That's something that we can't forget about this. It is the faithfulness of Christ, even in this moment, that Christ was faithful even unto death, even unto death on the cross. That is the hope for people like you and me. He was faithful. He passed the test. Peter failed, but Jesus succeeded. Adam failed, but Jesus succeeded. You and I have failed, but Jesus succeeded. He's the only one who's got a passing grade on the test, and he has a perfect score. And that's really the whole point of the gospel. It's not a message of, all right, guys, here's how we can be a little better this week so we can keep on that road to getting to heaven. No, it's we failed. But the good news is Christ succeeded. Christ was perfect. And he is offering his perfect righteousness to sinners like you and me. That he takes the punishment that we deserve on the cross and he gives us his perfect righteousness. That is the gospel. And even as we look at this text, and I think rightly, see so many things that should help us to stand, we can't miss that all of that is irrelevant without the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that the perfect son of God, the lamb of God lived and died in our place. And that's the only hope that we have. And if we have not put our trust in that, well, then we're not gonna be ready for any test that comes our way. But as we think again, well, what if we are put on the spot? What if someday you're on trial for your faith or you're being persecuted because of a stand that you are making that you think is, I'm, I'm just trying to be faithful to God or to the Bible. I think Jesus gives us just an incredible pattern in how to respond. I, I love what he, what he says. You know, he basically says, hey guys, I've got nothing to hide. I, I've, I've said these things in synagogues and the temples. These are very public places. And when he says, I've said nothing in secret, you might think, well, hasn't he said some things in secret to his disciples? But he's saying, I haven't been saying different stuff there as opposed to what I've been teaching the masses. Like it's out there. It's all clear what I have said. And it's amazing that we're, even though they're doing something very manipulative, very shady by trying to get Jesus to, to say more, he doesn't play their game. He doesn't go along with their manipulative trap but at the same time, he doesn't back down at all. He says, hey, I've said what I've said and I'm sticking by it. If you want me to you know, falsely incriminate myself or to rehash it all for you so you could twist that to your purposes, I'm not gonna do that. But I'm also not gonna deny anything that I've said. I think that's an incredible response. And I think, again, it starts to form a pattern for us. He, he responds with such an amazing blend of wisdom and courage and mercy and grace all in this moment. 
that I think we, we need to learn from each of those things. I mean, he, he shows courage that he does not back down. It, all he has to do is deny what he has said, and, and it's over, right? But he, he stands firm. Are you ready to stand firm based on what Christ has said? And again, this is an encouraging thing. When you're put on the spot, guess what? You don't have to come up with anything new. When you're put on the spot, you need to say, hey, all I believe is what Jesus says, and it's all right here. I think there should be a challenge for all of us to be able to say, you know, let me show you what I believe and where it comes from. And it comes from right here. You don't need to come up with anything new, but you need to master what Jesus has given us. You prepared to show people what Jesus said. And Jesus also had nothing to hide. They tried to get, hey, let's, let's get some people to come in here and, you know, who's got the dirt on Jesus? Guess what? They had no dirt on Jesus. Well, what about you? When persecution comes, are, are people going to be able to point out the obvious hypocrisy in your life that contradicts what you claim and, and what you say that you live for? You might think, well, yeah, Jesus was perfect. There was no dirt. Well, think of somebody like Daniel. They tried to find dirt on him and they couldn't find it. The only thing they could find was he prays a lot, right? Let that be the only thing they can find about you and me so that we're prepared for that moment. Jesus has courage, but he also, he has so much wisdom in this because they're trying to twist him, that they're trying to manipulate him and he sees right through it. And so he doesn't give them what he wants what they want, but at the same time, he does it in a way where he's not backing down at all. And even there's ways that I think he's kind of pushing back and pointing out the error of what they're doing. Even verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. I think Jesus is pointing out, hey guys, this is not the way it's supposed to go. You want to accuse me of something? Go get witnesses, right? He's kind of even asserting what's right and what's true in that moment and pushing back on what they're doing. Yet he does it all with grace. Because verse 22, we see one of the officers stands, standing by, hits Jesus in the face. Now that should be an amazing thing to us. Somebody literally punched God in the face. But what should be more amazing to us is that person punched God in the face and lived to tell the tale. That is grace right there. That, Jesus, that he wasn't immediately struck down. And even look at how Jesus responds. If I said what is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said was right, why do you strike me? Again, an amazing blend of courage where he's pushing back on that unjust thing that just happened. But he is also being gracious. One passage that talks about this and I think, again, provides such a great template for us is 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And it even tells us, hey, we should be looking at Jesus and how he went through this and studying it to say, that's, that's what I want to do. Because in verse 21, he says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Okay. Christ and how he suffered and how he handled that trial, that's how I should be looking to respond. And in verse 22, it says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, right? He, he wasn't on trial for sins he had committed. He, he was blameless. 
and he wasn't trying to cover up his tracks. He wasn't being deceitful or denying anything that he had said. And then verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the pattern. Even when the world is doing unjust things, and if you're faithful to Christ, unjust things will be done against you. Unfair things will be said about you. Your words will be twisted and thrown back at your face. And in those moments, it's saying, we're not supposed to respond in kind. We're not supposed to respond with reviling. We're not supposed to respond with threats. We should respond with this same blend of wisdom and courage and grace that we see from Jesus. And I think there's a challenge for all of us in there because some of you, the hardest part is gonna be actually having that courage to stand with Christ and say, nope, this is what the Bible says. This is what I believe. I'm sticking to it. And some of you, the hardest part is gonna be doing it with grace and not getting nasty in your own words back at the people that are mistreating you and not getting pejorative in your language about them, but staying steady and calm even as you continue to say what is true and right and good. I think Jesus gives us the incredible example here in this passage. But let's end with Peter in verses 25 through 27. And it says, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Now, again, a lot of this is familiar. Most of you today, if I said, hey, did Peter deny Christ three times? You're going to say, yeah, he did. This isn't new information. You see, the second question is very similar to the first one. It's phrased kind of in that negative way. You're not one of his disciples, are you? But then the third question gets a little more potentially serious because it's a relative of one of the officers, you know, that are of Malchus, right? And so it's hard to say, did this person know what had happened? Possibly. We don't know for, for sure, but there's a more direct accusation. Did I not see you in the garden with him? But still Peter denies it. And even the other gospels say at this point, he's resorting to oaths and curses and swearing, uh, saying, no, 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 no. I don't know Jesus. He denies Christ. But the detail I want us to draw our attention to, there is that, that last thing where Peter again denied it and at once the rooster crowed. Now, why is that detail important? Because I want us to just remember Jesus called it. Jesus said it would happen, even down to that detail, because Jesus didn't just say, hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. He said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And here we see, and at once the rooster crowed. And I think that rooster crow served as a reminder to Peter. And he was reminded of all the words that Jesus had said to him. I don't think Peter was like, all right, I've denied him 
twice now. I guess I'm going to deny him one more time. I don't think he was putting all that together. But when he denies him the third time and the rooster crows, I think now it all dawns on Peter what has happened. And what we're going to see is that was not the end for Peter. Point number four, see failure as a call to turn. See failure as a call to turn. And what we see in the other gospels is he went out and he wept bitterly. And and that wasn't a wrong response. He had done, he had failed. He had denied Christ three times. That was an awful thing worth weeping over. But again, Jesus had said more. He had called it Luke 22. Again, this is before the denial at the last supper. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he had told him, you're going to deny me. The rooster's going to crow. But when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Not only did he tell Peter of what was going to happen, he also told Peter what to do when it happened, that he was to turn again. And we've been talking a lot about the contrast between Peter and Jesus, but here I want to call to mind a contrast between Jesus and one of the other disciples, because he wasn't the only disciple that did something very, very bad that night. Judas betrayed Christ, turned him over to the authorities, led the authorities right to him. And did you know that after he did that, Judas also felt terrible about it? In Matthew 27, it says even that Judas changed his mind. And he even went to the leaders and said this, which you would think, hey, that's not a bad uh, start to an apology. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But he doesn't then turn again and strengthen his brothers he hangs himself, which is never the right response, never the right thing to do, whether it's to our own failures or whatever it may be. So when we fail, and that's another thing, even though we want to prepare, failure at some level in our lives is going to be inevitable. And what's really going to define our walk with Christ is what do we do when that happens? Do we turn like Peter? turn again and do what Christ calls us to do? Or do we just respond with guilt and shame that has no solution? And we try to resolve it ourselves. To do it right, we have to see a couple things. Again, we bring it back to the sovereignty of God. We've talked a lot lately about the sovereignty of God, how Jesus was in control in the garden, how God is in control over wicked rulers. Well, do you also know that God is in control even when you sin? Even God uses our sin to to turn it around for good. Now, again, that's never an excuse for us. We have to take responsibility for our sin. But I think where the struggle comes in for a lot of us is we don't actually want to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. We want to preach the sovereignty of ourselves. And why we're so bummed out in our sin is actually we're more disappointed in ourselves then we are disappointed that we've sinned against God. But we're disappointed in ourselves and really that we have shown I'm actually not in control because I did something that I knew I wasn't supposed to do or on some level didn't really want to do. And our sin shows us that we are not sovereign and that can drive us crazy and lead us to, all right, 
I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to make up for what I did. And it's all about me, me, me. When what we need to do is say, yes, I am responsible for my sin, but God is sovereign and God is gracious. And and there's a way for me to be forgiven and there's a way for me to be restored, but that's all going to come from God and not from me. And we're reminded of the grace that this isn't the end of the story for Peter and failure doesn't need to be the end of the story for you either. There's a way to turn again, but is it gonna be a grief that acknowledges the sovereignty of God, a grief that humbles yourself and comes to God? Or is it gonna be a grief that's really just focused on your own failure and the, the consequences and trying to figure it out yourself? One passage to look at before we close, move on to closing our service this morning is Second Corinthians chapter seven, where it describes the difference between this worldly grief that I think Judas had and the godly grief that it ultimately became clear that Peter had. In Second Corinthians seven verse nine, Paul says, "As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting." which is turning. You turned again. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That's the kind of grief we want to have when we fail. We're sorrowful over our sin, but we acknowledge God being in control. We turn to him and acknowledge his grace, and we turn again to do what we know he wants us to do.